The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Providing insight and resources for your spiritual journey. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here's your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Main Street Vegan Show. Thank you so much for being with us today. We are going to be talking with two extraordinary women about some very different topics, but you know what they have in common? They're things of interest to women and to men who have an interest in the uh, other half of uh, the population. After the break, we're going to be bringing on Dr. A. Breeze Harper. You know Dr. Harper's work from her seminal book, Sista Vegan, and all that she is doing in the intersectionality movement. And right now, we're going to be speaking with someone I admire, someone I consider a friend, and I'm honored to be able to say that, and she is Sugand Agrawal. She is the founder the designer, and the mastermind behind the high-fashion, zero-cruelty brand, Gunas New York. If you've got a fabulous vegan bag collection, I know you have a Gunas bag or maybe several. Sugand is a trained designer with a BFA in industrial design and a master's in design management from the Pratt Institute in New York, And when she's not working on Gunas, she's spending time with her lovely two-year-old baby girl and her loving husband, exploring the city, cooking up vegan meals, and venturing out to visit nearby animal sanctuaries. What a lovely life. Welcome, Sugand. Thank you so much, Victoria. Thanks for having me on your show. 
Well, it's wonderful to have you on the show and in the world and to have your bags out there looking amazing. And I love how you say high fashion, zero cruelty. There is absolutely no need to compromise ever. So tell us the inspiration behind starting Gunas. Um, Victoria, so I've been a lifelong vegetarian and, um, and now vegan and, um, and, uh, you know, design and art and fashion was just something that I was always passionate about and having been to an art school, um, and then when I came to New York to do my masters, I, um, happened to meet a handbag designer, um, through a friend and then we were just talking about, um, the handbag industry and it just sounded something so cool and amazing and, um, and since I uh, was an entrepreneur at heart, um, you know, I felt like, oh, my gosh, this is a great idea. I think, you know, I, I love shoes and bags, and which girl doesn't? <laughs> um, and this is something I can totally do. So uh, while I was still doing my master's, I interned at um, another independent handbag um, designer, uh, designer's company. And uh, my first job was actually to go into their um, their Hyde stock room and arrange um, the Hyde's. And when I went in there, um, you know, just seeing the entire silhouette of an animal um, on the table um, just made me have that big aha moment when I, you know, just made that big um, connection between my the, my fashion and, you know, where it was coming from. And then, um, you know, and that's just how it all started out. I just could not get myself to wear another leather bag or a shoe and, and you know, then the whole story of uh, the Gunas brand started. Mm. So I, I know that you're from India and I have a question. Mm-hmm. I know that a, a lot of, of Indians, a lot of, of people of the Hindu faith are vegetarian. Does that carry yeah. over into leather or is leather worn as much in India as anywhere else? Um, you know, I think, unfortunately, we've just been so bombarded with marketing to think that leather is what luxury is, and um, leather is durable, and, uh, you know, <laughs> and you know, people just think that it's eco-friendly because it comes from nature. Um, so in India, yes, there, you know, the Hindu lifestyle does um, uh, encourage worshipping the cow, but there is a huge disconnect when it comes to Understanding that if you're not eating meat, then why are you wearing um, leather or you know skins that come from animals? Um, mm. There are different sects in um, in the Hindu culture as well, like Jains. You know, you know Jainism. They don't uh, people that follow Jainism. They don't wear leather. You know, they're more aware um, of this. Um, side of um, the vegan lifestyle, but uh, most of the Hindus um, aren't aware. So like I was, you know, uh, I was one of the ignorant people <laughs> when I um, yeah. when I first uh, found out about veganism and the whole lifestyle. It was just my curiosity that led me to find it. Well, there, there's always something more to learn for sure. Now, before we Absolutely. leave the Hindu tradition, though, I do <laughs> want to ask you about the name of your company. So, everybody, mm-hmm. it's G U N A S. Uh, Gunas the brand is um, the website, gunasthebrand.com. Where does that name come from? Um, so, that's also a very interesting story. Um, 
Victoria, and I think you know we've talked about it too, uh, but I would love to share that with um, your listeners. So I always wanted the brand to have an essence of my name, Sugandh, and so I just sat down in my apartment with uh, pieces of paper, and I wrote down all my alphabets on it and started rearranging it um, to form an interesting word because um, I felt that my name... Um, wouldn't resonate with people that easily since it's difficult to pronounce for a few. Um, and then I came up with Gunas and I Googled it up and um, I was just so amazed to find out that it had such a deep spiritual meaning. Um, and Gunas uh, is like the essence of all our being. It's a Sanskrit word. And um, if anyone's familiar with yoga, they must have definitely heard it in their, in their yoga practice. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, the idea that ev- everything in life has a characteristic that, that can be, mm-hmm. can, can fall within one of these gunas. And when you have all of them, you have all of life on earth. So talk about yeah. a holistic handbag. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> so Sugand, there are a lot of vegan handbag brands. So what do you think sets yours apart? Well, A, um, I think, you know, we were really the first um, brand to push the whole um, 100% vegan aspect of fashion. Um, there were a lot of vegan brands out there, but when I, when I say 100%, it also means like down to the adhesives that are used for the bags. Um, so when I was researching for the fabrics and the materials and just the manufacturing process, I really went down to, um, uh, you know, the roots of how a bag is made and all the aspects of the, the supply chain. Um, so that's really one. And then also the materials that I use are really high quality um, a lot of research and um, testing goes into choosing and picking the fabrics that I use for my collection. Um, and then also the, the products ethically made. So uh, I initially began the line uh, with, um, you know, manufacturing in Manhattan's fashion district, and the price point was just too high, and I tried to do everything correctly, you know, from uh, making it sweatshop-free to cruelty-free, and then unfortunately I had to try um, China for production. And when I went over there, um, I was just shocked with the kind of uh, working standards the country had. So I even went as far as starting my own um, little studio in India where I was working with artisans. So I think really, uh, you know, in a whole, I think the brand just has been so authentic um, and uh, so transparent with, with the consumer. I think that's what really sets us apart. And they're gorgeous. I mean, the the design <laughs> Thank standards. They're, they're art pieces. Uh, when I was looking mm-hmm. at what what I wanted to put up just to let people know that you were going to be on the show, it's very unusual that you can just take a picture of a handbag. You know, not not mm-hmm. with a model, not in a cute you know photo setup, but just <laughs> here is this bag. And there's something about the shape, the aesthetics, the the texture. They, they really are just extraordinary. So I do encourage everybody to check out GunasTheBrand.com. And you will actually see me there on the homepage because I love these bags. <laughs> and you will also yeah. see Emily Deschanel, which is just like, oh, my gosh, how do I get on the same page as Emily Deschanel? Life is good. <laughs> so tell us, Sugan, um, about your journey so far because this is kind of a spiritual journey for you as a creative person, a- as a vegan activist. So fill us in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think 
you know, this really has been a, a very, very um, spiritual journey for me, um, just starting the company. Like, I, I, I don't think of Gunas as just a company or just a brand. I think it's really been my path of um, self-discovery um, and just being more aware of my surroundings, um, just discovering new things about life and uh, you know, just the way we treat each other or, um, you know, how we impact uh, our planet or our surroundings. Um, every day, I think, is just such a big learning process for me and, um, you know, discovering new things. So I, uh, yeah, this is just not, not just about the money or just a company to me. It's really just the whole lifestyle. And, um, and you know, Gunas, everything about Gunas just really stems from, what I learn and what I perceive um, every day in my life. And you're also influencing people. I think all the vegan designers and, and the vegan companies are putting something out there in the world. You'd use um, the word before of, of the disconnect. And, and there are just mm-hmm. so many disconnects about the way that we use animals in so many ways all over the world. Yeah. And yet when someone sees a wonderful product and it says cruelty-free... The implication mm-hmm. is, oh gosh, that means there are some that aren't. So as you look out into the right. changing marketplace, who's your customer today? How has that changed? Are we going to maybe get everybody wearing cruelty-free before everybody eats cruelty-free? I think, um, you know, honestly, um, Victoria, I feel that um, even though I have to market the brand like any other company, I feel a lot of times people are actually seeking out the brand because they're becoming more aware of this kind of lifestyle. They're becoming more aware of their impact um, on the planet. And so they're really seeking the brand out themselves. Um, You know, for example, like when I uh, was vegetarian and then I turned vegan and then I discovered, okay, wait, I don't wear leather, but then what about wool you know what about down and then it slowly crept into finding out uh, about cosmetics okay the cruelty free you know it's not just about fashion or food it's also about beauty and then it's in you know in your pharmaceuticals or <laughs> there's just so many different areas that animals are uh, used or abused uh, if you may um, and it's just a, a process of discovery so I really feel that my customer today um, has evolved. I think people, uh, you know, back in 2009 or 2008 when I started researching for the company in 2009 when I launched, uh, people were just so unaware. Um, and I think that, um, you know, people weren't willing to adopt the whole vegan fashion because it was not glamorous enough or it didn't look aesthetically as nice and they just weren't willing to give up their Gucci's or Prada's or Kate Spade's, if you will, or Michael Kors. Um, but today they're just so much more informed. They want to make that change. Um, that change is gradual, uh, but I think it's really up to designers like me to really give them that option and make it a lot easier. And I feel that if it's easy, you know, and um, and if they don't really have to sacrifice their style or, um, you know, their love for a bag that they just see in the market. And, um, you know, then I think it's a lot easier for them to make that switch. But, yes, they're definitely more informed um, and more open and willing to um, to transfer over to vegan fashion. Mm. And, and, and you certainly are making it easier. I mean, I remember... <laughs> Non-leather bags, some of them used to look okay, but you'd touch mm-hmm. them and you'd just cringe. 
<laughs> and, and yours and you know so, some of, of the others as, as well you touch them and you know that you're touching quality it makes such a difference so uh, congratulations mm-hmm. you won something you so or Gunas <laughs> won an award uh, from the ethical fashion forum in London so tell us yeah. what that is and how you won um, so uh, around 2011, 2012, when we had the whole Bangladesh tragedy, uh, tragedy when um, the entire building collapsed and the whole world was waking up to the, uh, the sweatshop environment of, uh, you know, the garment industry, um, around then um, the Ethical Fashion Forum was just forming in London, um, and they were just kind of gathering all the designers in the world to really be a part of this organization. Gunas was actually one of the founding members, and And um, at that time, it it was around the same time when I was so fed up of the Chinese manufacturing and um, not being able to afford production in New York that I started my own studio in India where I was working with the artisans. And um, that's when the EFF really recognized my work and the brand uh, and then brought me on as a a founding partner and uh, awarded the company for being uh, the most ethical and uh, fashionable handbag brand. Oh, so we were actually the first in, uh, in the world to win that award, too. <laughs> wow. Wow, that's wonderful. And then you also pass it along. You donate a percentage of, of proceeds mm-hmm. to to charity, which is very much in keeping with Unity Online Radio. I know Unity is a tradition that encourages people to give a percentage to what they believe to be the work of God in the world. So um, how do you pick your charities? What do you look for? Well, um, honestly, I, you know, I get approached by charities all the time, Victoria. And for me personally, it's just been easier um, to work with the Catskills Animal Sanctuary or the Woodstock Sanctuary because they're more accessible. I, I can visit them anytime I want, so I know where my um, donations are going. Um, so I really, um, you know, I think at the heart of it, I'm such a wildlife supporter. So just recently I started working with uh, a small local um, foundation started by just two people that actually work in, in Africa to save rhinos and lions and um, the elephants. And so it's really, uh, I mean, the, I, I meet the people that work uh, in the organizations and then I, I talk to them about what they're doing, you know, how they're supporting um, uh, to make a change. And if that really speaks to me, then I support them. Mm-hmm. But on a daily basis, I do get approached by charities that ask for donations in terms of product uh, for their fundraisers. And, uh, you know, we give away about at least 50 to 60 bags every year. Um, just in donation. Um, and that's actually, like, I think I'm saying that wrong. It might even be close to 100 bags, um, which is a huge chunk <laughs> for me. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, and that's besides the cash donations that we give. Well, it's a wonderful thing, and I think that is a really good suggestion for anybody, especially those of us who aren't philanthropists, who aren't wealthy, and who aren't going to be able to make giant gifts that change everything, to pick one or two that you really believe in and know that that your support, however much you can share, is going to make a big difference. So you're a wise woman as well as a great designer. So everybody, check out Gunas 
thebrand.com. I see I've been pronouncing it wrong. I'm going to change that. Gunas.luxury.bags on Facebook. Gunas the Brand on Twitter. I'll put all the URLs and the information about Sugand and this wonderful, glorious company on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. So do go over there and have a look. Sugand, thank you so much, and may you change the world of fashion. Thank you so much, Victoria. It was so wonderful talking to you. Take care. And Thanks. Everybody else, stay with us. We're going to be bringing on Dr. A. Breeze Harper and talking about the intersection of oppression and liberation. We'll be back. that inspire you most with audiences around the world? That's easier than ever with mobile giving. Just text Unity Radio to 72727 and help us continue offering spiritual programs that change lives. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. is full of voices, advertising, television, politics, colleagues, family, and friends. All are too happy to tell us how to live. In all of that noise, it's easy to miss the one voice that matters, your own soul. What would happen if you could hear that voice? Imagine the clarity 
confidence and courage that would be yours and the life you could create. Join Janet Connor, best-selling author of Writing Down Your Soul, The Lotus and the Lily, and Your Soul Wants Five Things, as she and her guests explore how to hear the call of the soul and create the soul-directed life. Live Thursday at 1 p.m. Central, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Go inside to find my God. You're listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back to the Main Street Vegan Show, everybody. I am Victoria Moran. I'm so happy to be speaking with you today. If you want to know more about what we do, you can just mosey on over to MainStreetVegan.net, where we will have our show notes giving you information about both of today's guests. And, oh, my goodness, there's lots more over there to discover and explore. We do have an events page that tells you all the things that I'm up to. And the next thing happening is February 12th in Tampa, Florida, where I will be the keynote speaker for Florida Voices for Animals annual dinner. And if you would like to have dinner with us on February 12th, just check out FloridaVoicesForAnimals.org. Now, somewhere that I won't be this year, but so many very, very cool people will be, people you know from our show, like... uh, Ellen Jaffe Jones, uh, Stephanie Redcross of Vegan Mainstream, Chef AJ, Garth Davis, the wonderful physician who gave us a proteinaholic. They are all going to be speaking at the Health Fest in Marshall, Texas, the town that Health built. So if you want to watch the movie about what happened there when the mayor and the first lady went vegan and changed a whole town, it's called the Marshall Plan Movie. You can just stream it, just free and fun. And if you would like to attend that conference for a 10% discount, just put in the code MAINSTREET when you go to healthfest.com. And uh, you can just show up down there in Marshall, Texas, and tell them hey from me. Now it is my distinct pleasure to introduce someone whose work I have known for just about seven years now, and that is her seminal book, Sister Vegan, Black Female Vegan, Speak on Food, Identity, Health, and Society. Dr. Abreese Harper is a critical race and feminist studies scholar. She focuses on social justice, anti-racism, and unconscious bias, to name a few, within the ethical foodscape. Her most recent book is Scars, a black lesbian experience in rural white New England, which interrogates how systems of oppression and power impact the life of the only black teenager living in an all-white working-class rural New England town. And I just learned that with all this scholarship and writing and speaking, Dr. Harper is the mother of an eight-year-old and a brand-new baby. Congratulations on both, and welcome to the program. 
Thank you. Um, I'm honored to be on this program, and um, thank you for inviting me. And actually, I have a 11 week old, a three year old, a five year old, and a to be eight year old. So, oh my goodness, um, I'm pretty busy. I, I, yes. I skipped. Well, you know, women, we we have um, energy that comes from somewhere mystical. And then, of course, being vegan helps. There's something that I didn't say in the introduction, because I could have spent half the interview just talking about your many qualifications. But if you'll recall that we had Clifton Roberts on the show a few months back when he was the Humane Party presidential candidate in 2016, and we talked about Dr. A. Breeze Harper as his vice presidential candidate. So, uh, you can tell us a little bit about that and quite a bit about so much else. So why don't we just start with some history? Where did the Sista Vegan Project start and what is the ethical foodscape? Well, about, let's see, has it been 12 years now? About 12 years ago, I was experiencing really bad fibroid tumors. And one of my colleagues at work told me, Breeze, you should check out the work of Queen Afua. And I had never heard of this person before. But she said, check out the book, Sacred Woman. So I did. And um, Sacred Woman was a comedic Egyptian approach to veganism and raw foods and really focused on the reproductive health system of cisgender women of African descent. And the diet actually helped me cure my fibroid tumors. And I went to a specialist twice a year to get a sonogram that shows that the tumors were shrinking and then one day they were gone. So I thought, wow, um, I've been told many lies about nutrition over my whole life. No one ever told me if I had a highly acidic diet, if I didn't drink enough water, if I didn't green my diet, if I had so many animal products in my diet that it would contribute to these reproductive ailments. So what else have I been lied to about? So this kind of got my wheels turning as someone who's always interested in what I consider decolonizing our minds. And um, what I mean by that is we live in a society that was built on ideas around colonialism, capitalism, and it's really taken our minds away from us to thinking critically. And this is when I say society, I mean the USA. Um, So I thought to myself, what could this mean? So I, I dove in deeper into, you know, how this is connected, that my fibroid tumors have been eliminated through veganism, and what else can veganism offer? Um, and then I also was living in Boston at the time, and I realized I never met a vegan um, black person. So I did a call for papers, and I thought, you know, we live in a society that is clearly has um, racial discrimination problems and um, sexism. So what would it be like for black women who are vegan to share their experiences as women who are practicing veganism, but also identify as black and live in a society where there is systemic anti-blackness. So there came the sister vegan project. And then when I talk about uh, ethical foodscape, a foodscape is a term that basically means um, the social relations that come out of um, land that is used for consumption and food. So, um, and what cultures come out of that? So I'm interested what type of social relations come out of particular foodways and foodscapes, geographies of food that are kind of um, 
that have rooted in them systemic racism, systemic sexism, um, all of these systems of oppression, systemic speciesism. So I'm, I'm curious about that. So that's kind of what my work is, that intersectional approach to veganism, that it's not just about veganism, but I use veganism to explore or use this as a platform to explore systemic oppression, anti-racism, experiences based on ethnic and racial identity. And that veganism is not in a vacuum, but it's actually deeply affected by all of these social factors and forces. So, Breeze, I've always thought that when someone decides to be vegan, they're volunteering to be part of a minority. But when someone is already part of a, a racial minority or some other minority, and then they decide to be vegan, it just seems like it takes even more courage and, and more grit. Is that true? I think it depends what, um, you know, regions of the world you're talking about and um, what identities we're talking about. So I imagine whenever you take on anything that isn't part of the majority, you're going to struggle. But most of us, we're not just one identity. So we have many identities that are privileged and many identities that are not privileged. Mm. So, for example, you know, being a woman um, identified person already in a society that is heavily patriarchal, you're going to have challenges. Um, and then if you decide to become vegan, um, food choices, food access, if we're just focusing on veganism, specifically eating food that is vegan, um, that itself is gendered. So, um, it's, you know, white cisgender men have the easiest access to food and food choice. Um, and then we start talking about women or white women who may want to become vegan. They have second to men, it's harder for them because they're women. Then you start talking about class. So it's these intersections. So specifically when I'm talking about, like, if I'm looking at focusing on black women, which I've done for the last seven to ten years, um, stereotypically um, most black people have grown up in households that, of course, have omnivorous diets and that there's a type of connection to cultural identity um, that people have when they're eating particular foods that are from their ethnic or racial background. So in my studies, in my work and talking to a lot of black women who've transitioned to veganism, um, a lot of them found it challenging because their family members thought that they were kind of shying away from what would be considered um, black cultural food practices and identities around that are based around that, such as soul food. And um, they they were challenged by kind of trying, going, like transitioning into veganism and um, trying to figure out how to redefine their own identities through this particular food way. Um, and then there are other challenges also where um, not just with lack of family or friend support, but going into spaces that are mainstream vegan spaces um, and those mainstream vegan spaces um, already assuming that those in there are white, middle-class, and able-bodied. So that is a particularly hard space to be in when the assumption is that you're a white person and you've got this person who's identified as black in that space. And so what I mean by that is um, when you're racialized as white in the United States, there are particular patterns and particular social processes that you accept and you don't even realize um, you're doing it. It's almost at an unconscious level. Um, so for example, um, some of my friends said that there are, you know, predominantly white vegans having a vegan event in a predominantly white town. And a lot of us women um, of color think, you know, this event isn't in a traditionally sundown town. So these are the things that we have to start thinking about uh, when we talk about the challenges of veganism. Is that event that I'm 
is about veganism, is it in a traditionally sundown town? Will I be safe and comfortable once the sun goes down? Will I be racially profiled when I'm driving in the streets or walking to the event? So these are the types of challenges that we talk about. And then also, lastly, um, in part of my book, in the last part of my book, um, in Sister Vegan, we talk about um, collectively uh, black folk tend to think that a woman is healthier if she has a little more curves on her so a lot of us who transitioned to veganism, we actually did lose a considerable amount of weight. Not to say that that's what happens with everyone who becomes vegan, but a lot of us experienced that. And our friends and families actually thinking we didn't look healthy and saying, you know, girl, you need to put some more meat on your bones. You look very, very sick. What's going on? Um, but also when we would move into spaces where it was more white and mainstream, that we'd be complimented and told, oh, you look really healthy. You look really great because you've lost weight. So we talk about those challenges and also talking about sizeism and fat phobia in all different spheres. So those are the challenges that we deal with, and those are some of the examples that I just wanted to provide. Wow. So were you aware prior to your dietary change of all of these intersections I mean, I, I've been vegan 33 years, and I think I, I really only started to become seriously aware of, of intersectionality in the last 10 years and, and probably seriously in the last five. So is this something that you and your work, I know you're a PhD, were looking at before, or did becoming vegan uh, provide an aha for that? Yeah, well, I was looking at this before, and it started off probably when I was living in Lebanon, Connecticut, which is, let's see, I was I grew up in the 1980s, and um, Lebanon is like 97% white working class. So I noticed differences between myself and my twin and how we were treated. So he's a boy, I was identified as a girl, and um, I noticed that, you know, he experienced his black identity differently than me because he was a boy and those expectations and, and what was, um, you know, the stereotype of a black boy versus a black girl. And then when I got to Dartmouth College as an undergrad, I started taking women and gender studies classes and I was introduced to Bell Hooks and Kimberly Crenshaw. And Kimberly Crenshaw is one of the quote unquote mothers of intersectionality where um, she talks about how um, black women collectively, we can't just understand our experience through racial formation or racialization. We also have to bring in class, we have to bring in gender and sexuality, and that they all contribute to how we're treated and perceived in reality in this world and um, and how we navigate through the world. So that's kind of how I was introduced to that in the early 90s. Um, but at the same time, I was also still eating animal products, and I had never actually come across any scholarship within the critical race and black feminist studies realm about food that um, and consumption that was veganism, uh, veganist, and was not um, particularly specious. So I had that background without having the lens to be more critical around how um, non-human animals are are exploited and used in, in our culture. And then it was in... I guess it was 2004, 2005, when I was introduced to Queen Afua, that I, it was that aha moment when, um, at least in particular, when Queen Afua was talking about diet, talking about how black women's wounds um, during antebellum slavery collectively were exploited and how our breasts were basically used to nurse as slaves, nurse the slave master's baby. So I started like making all of these connections and thinking, 
wow, this is really deep. And there had been no scholarship done about this. Um, when I first proposed to do this work, this intersectional approach to veganism, and I guess the mid-2000s, I got a lot of vitriol and, and um, hate from white-identified vegans who thought that I was being divisive, that gender and race had no place um, in the vegan foodscape and any of the spaces and that this was basically a distraction. So that was the response I got. And it told me that it seems like most folk who have this response really don't understand what intersectionality is and that when you approach a problem or um, any type of process holistically and intersectionality, that you can only, you know, it, it can only enhance it and enhance your understanding of how to be a great social justice person, environmental justice person. So that was in the mid 2000s. But now, you know, I think in the past five or seven years, um, intersectionality is, 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 is being taken more seriously in the mainstream, not just in veganism, but in a lot of the spaces I've been um, navigating through as a scholar and as an activist, that it's becoming more, um, people are paying more attention to it and really understanding, while this is not devices, this is actually crucial if we want to um, make a huge impact as social justice, environmental, and human rights activists. And particularly in the vegan spaces, I've seen that my work um, has been received more positively, especially in the last three to five years, there's a huge shift where a lot of people that normally would not have accepted this concept of intersectionality as crucial to um, enhancing their vegan practice. Um, these particular people have now been contacting me saying, you know, I didn't understand what it was seven, ten years ago, but now I'm, you know, I understand it better. It's actually making me understand that, you know, I can't not talk about the prison industrial complex and not talk about veganism, and, and, and I can't ignore all of these. It's all connected. So um, last year we had, or the year before, we had a intersectional conference about the Black Lives Matter and veganism. A lot of people, when they saw that, they, they, didn't, they didn't understand how that could be connected, but 200 people attended, and people were, um, they were, for instance, there was a person who talked about the prison industrial complex and how racial profile puts a lot of brown and black men in prison um, far more than white people, and then how um, the agricultural industry uses them as exploitative labor and how um, particular animals are also suffering and exploited and they're being worked on by these incarcerated men. So just kind of making those connections that you can't, you can't ignore the prison industrial complex. You can't ignore racial profile because both humans and non-human animals are suffering within that. So that's an intersectional oh, approach. This is so important. I'm so glad you came along when you did. It's interesting to hear you say nobody had done any of this work. And I'm thinking, well, it was waiting for you. So you, speak of black feminists. That's a phrase that comes up often in, in your, your work and, and as a, a scholar in, in the vegan world. So why, why is this important? Give us an example that, that we can understand of how you use black feminism to analyze vegan culture. Yeah. Um, so I can kind of go back to my own work. Um, when I was doing my dissertation work, I was interested actually in Queen Afua's work. And um, I'd seen that there there wasn't deep um, analysis on the meaning of Queen Afua's work through a critical race and a black feminist lens. So by black feminist, I mean, what does it mean for these black 
uh, women to practice veganism, what does it mean for Queen Afua to take the, the Afrocentric perspective that she has? So why is that important? And why can't I use a traditional, like, first or second wave feminism, which is mostly white women's um, work, and a lot of that work really only looked at gender and didn't look at race because it's a privilege not to have to actually look at how your white race or racial formation affects your perception and how you, how you navigate the world. So with black feminism, um, it's, it's, it's intersections of being racialized as black, um, gender, and uh, to a high degree also class and sexual orientation. So um, I was interested in, you know, why would a black woman practice veganism and what has histories of intersections of sexism and institutionalized and covert racism, how has that affected a black woman's experience? So that's kind of how I'm using black feminism. So what does it mean, for example, Queen Afua to look at raw food, raw food veganism as a way to decolonize the black body? Why is it so important for me to use a black feminist lens? Well, it's important because historically uh, black women have not had the access that they need to the right nutrition, the right food, and that's because of structural and systemic racism, because of histories of colonialism, because of histories of racism. That has had consequences hundreds of years down the road where we see now how, um, you know, for example, black women are three to five times more likely to get fibroid tumors. Um, we have higher instances of obesity, of diabetes. So that has a connection that, that's connected to the history of, of what it means to be racialized as black in the United States, which is built on a white supremacist racial caste system. So how does that actually play into our vegan practices, our vegan spaces, and the meanings we apply to food? So, for instance, Queen Afua, she applies the meaning of, of liberation and power through green raw foods. So I look at that and I really understand, like, it's not just about green raw foods, but the meanings that are applied to this. And I use black feminist lens to really understand why has she chosen that? Why has she chosen vegan green food? Why has she chosen the site of black women's reproductive health as a way to start decolonizing our bodies? And then I connect a black feminist analysis of the black woman's womb by looking back, starting in antebellum slavery and how the black woman's womb um, was, was exploited and used um, in many ways to build a white capitalist economy that we still feel today. So I don't know if that's too much, but I'm trying to condense like all of these <laughs> concepts, but we use a, use a white feminist lens where, you know, a white woman had a completely different experience. If I use white fem feminism to understand Queen of Fua's work, it's not a, sufficient enough. I have to use um, specifically the black feminist lens and go back historically to really understand, you know, why she's saying, green raw foods is the key to decolonizing the, the black woman's womb where you have to understand that history through a black feminist lens and how that liberation um, is, is possible, at least through her, through her particular methods of raw foods, veganism. Mm. This is absolutely fascinating to me because when I was a young vegan and a vegetarian trying to be vegan through an eating disorder, I had two main mentors a white man and a black man, Jay Dinshaw of the American Vegan Society and Dick Gregory. And I thought that from that point of view, I was getting all of it. <laughs> but now, you know, you're explaining that there's more, there's more and, and there needs to be a Queen Afua and there needs to be a Dr. 
Abrey's Harper and all the rest of us. So you have another phrase that um, I'm going to ask you about, and that is white fragility. And what is that, and how does it apply to the ethical foodscape? Yeah. Um, so white fragility is a term that's coined by a scholar named Dr. Robin D'Angelo. Um, she wrote a paper that was published in 2011, and it was called White Fragility. And what she basically did was break down what happens collectively when white people are asked to talk about or deal with the realities of race and racism in the United States. And most of them, I say collectively, because I don't talk about individuals, I'm talking about collectively, which means I'm seeing significant patterns among more than 50% of the population. Um, so when that's race or racism or whiteness is brought up, there are these mechanisms where they try to stop talking about it or um, they invoke, you know, an emotional response where, oh, no, you're, you're, con- you're telling me that I'm a racist or race is not a problem. So there's these, these responses that don't create a more productive method of combating the realities of racism, but it basically just halts it or it dismisses it when people of color are talking about it. Um, and there's lots of rage and anger because in all honesty, most people who are white identified who don't think of themselves as racist don't want to hear that race is a problem still. So that and most people who are white identified, they don't want to hear those things. So there's this thing called white fragility and there's like seven or 10 um, bullet points she goes through that she shows um, what, what this looks like when you're talking about this in a, a space with white people and people of color and how white people will tend to say things like, well, my best friend is black, so I'm not racist. Or we, we don't need to talk about race because we have a black president and not understanding that like there's different ways that race and racism operate. It's like completely different in a post-civil rights act era. Um, so for example, um, I actually talk a lot about this within the vegan foodscape because when I first introduced this to vegan, I got a lot of white fragility. I got a lot of anger and hostility on why do you have to do this project? This is divisive. So that those particular types of responses are actually examples of white fragility. Um, and for me, instead of actually responding negatively and also with the same type of anger, I use those those um, instances or those examples um, as ways to bolster the work that I do and to find more compassionate ways to explain to people that, you know, you're white identified. And if you think that you're not racist, well, actually um, we live in a systemically racist society. So by default, it's, it's even in your unconscious that you may um, reproduce racism. So um, for instance, and this is kind of controversial, but there are people who, will um they'll identify as white and um they'll try to do outreach work focused on um people of color communities that are not vegan and they'll use methods that are what i would consider kind of a missionary or colonialist approach in their communication and it's even it's unconscious they won't even realize that what they're doing um is not very inclusive of the people that they're they're trying to connect to and then the people that are experiencing this communication style in a missionary colonialistic way are going to experience it negatively because these particular marginalized groups have this history where the missionary and colonialistic approach had a very negative outcome for them. So um, often when I try to point this out, 
I get a lot of, you know, suddenly, I'm not a racist. What do you mean by that? I'm a good person. I'm vegan and I help animals. So that's the type of responses I'm getting. And that's like, that's an example of white fragility. Um, another is uh, people who, when they find out I'm doing this work, uh, a lot of people, and I won't name names, but have blogged or written about how I'm supposedly white hating or I hate white people because I am critiquing the consequences of a white supremacist racial caste system. So instead of thinking, oh, this could be a learning moment for me as a white person, this person who is a black woman with a PhD in this is saying that there are structural systemic problems that are connected to racism and white supremacy. Instead of thinking that this could be a learning moment, instead, the white fragile reaction is, oh my God, she hates white people. Oh my God, she's making white people feel guilty. So um, this is not going to help anybody who's trying to help human beings and non-human animals, um, because when you're not open to hearing how a marginalized group is experiencing oppression, it reinforces your own privilege and it makes that um, space very exclusive. It doesn't make a space that is a space to build solidarity with a particular marginalized human beings are actually saying, you know, this is real. Racism is real. This is how it affects us. And if you can kind of become an ally and be in solidarity with us, it will help us become stronger with our vegan practices. And it will make you become stronger with not just your vegan practice, but the way you look at and understand and practice social justice for non-white human beings. So with only three and a half minutes left, I could listen to you for a lot longer than the time that we've had. We're, we're living in a country right now that seems more divided than certainly I have seen maybe ever. And, and people are looking for ways to have some sort of connection across barriers and across aisles what what do you say? Is it possible? What's a first step? Yeah, I actually do think it's possible. Um, so, you know, I've been listening to and reading um, a lot of Dr. Barber's work. He is the, um, he, he heads the NAACP of North Carolina, and he actually just wrote a book called The Third Reconstruction. So right now, he theorizes that the USA is going through their third reconstruction period. So if you know history, whenever there is an advancement in civil rights or advancement around um, rights for racial minorities, there's this collective backlash by white people who don't want to see their privileges and their resources taken away because of those advances, or at least they perceive that their privileges and resources will be taken away. Um, so the backlashes are very violent and, um, this is the third one that's happening right now because we're at a tipping point where it's obvious that, yes, white people will become the new minority. And um, there's a lot of panic and there's a lot of um, uncertainty by, by a lot of white people who really think that um, non-white people who are given equity and equality are going to, quote, unquote, take away resources, take away jobs, take away this or that. And um, as I'm looking at history, I feel like we have overcome that even though there has been a lot of people who have lost their lives, we've overcome that um, by coming together through, you know, just meeting each other and trying to teach each other that we're not being divisive, but we're actually trying to understand um, what it means to take an intersectional approach to these. So um, I am seeing a lot of people, you know, say that, 
Um, it's not just about race. It's not just about class. Um, it's not just about gender. Um, it's, it's, it's all happening all together. And that um, one of the biggest enemies to all, most of us who are the 99%, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's capitalism. It's a very extreme capitalist society that depends on racism and classism and um, homophobia to keep us disenfranchised, to keep us fractioned so we don't actually come together and see that our common enemy is actually, you know, the 1% that is um, banking on us kind of falling into these traps of the isms. So I see that, I guess, ever since um, a certain leader has come into power, um, a lot of groups that normally have had a one-dimensional approach to social justice have realized that we all have to start coming together and that um, it will become stronger if we learn from each of our marginalized experiences and come together to fight this um, this. I guess this new this new leader that's in power and in this new administration and cabinet. So I, I feel like um, it seems scary right now, but I feel like there are so many people. I mean, there are like at least half the country that does not agree with what's going on right now coming together. And you would normally not see a lot of these people come together, but kind of be in their own little gated community and and um, not be so open to accepting other perspectives and other marginal perspectives as a way to um, bolster and enhance their own activism. Mm. Well, I could ask you another 20 questions, but unfortunately we're time and past time. Thank you so, so very much. I will put all of your info on the show notes. It's Sista, S-I-S-T-A-H, vegan.com. Breeze Harper on Facebook, Sista Vegan on Twitter, and a new project coming, Recipes for Racial Tension, Headaches, and Vegan Praxis of Justice in an Era of Black Lives Matter. We will check out your site and find out what that's all about. Thank you so much. And to everybody listening, God bless you and eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. Are you ready to live in joy? Is there an area of your life where you could use a miracle? Have you been praying for help and guidance? Come join Lisa and Bill and their guests for an hour filled with practical tips on experiencing miracles, greater abundance, focused, deliberate living, and the peace of God that passeth all understanding. Experience more joy in life. Listen to Living in Joy, Reflections on A Course in Miracles with Lisa Natoli and Bill Free every Friday at 2 p.m. Central here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. When your world goes topsy-turvy and turmoil threatens, try this exercise. Think about tranquility. Let the screen of your mind reflect whatever the word tranquility may bring. 
Perhaps you'll see a majestic snow-covered mountain peak, perhaps a clear still lake or a sparkling stream. Enjoy whatever image comes. It's your thought. Now let yourself find the place of complete stillness deep within you. Here you are poised, serene, and peaceful. The poet T.S. Eliot wrote, At the still point, there the dance is. The dance of life continually shifts its rhythm and form in its attempt to carry you beyond limited ideas of who you are. Enter into the still point of your being. There, regardless of what may surround you, you will find peace. This message has been brought to you by the Association of Unity Churches International. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. When you truly understand the laws of the universe and live a life based on these profound and unwavering truths, then your dream life starts today. No more waiting. No more wandering. If you're ready to let go of the striving and move into the allowing, you are ready for everyday attraction on Unity Online Radio. We study the teaching of Abraham given to us by beautiful Esther Hicks so we can release confusion for clarity, exchange struggle for serenity, and have the time of our lives today. Join host Ray Zander every Friday at noon Central Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Unity Online Radio for Everyday Attraction, where the law of attraction gets real. Since 1977, Omega Institute in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley has hosted some of the best spiritual teachers and social visionaries, sharing their messages of hope, healing, and transformation. On the Dropping In podcast, hosted by Emmy Award-winning producer Callie Alpert, you will enjoy in-depth interviews and conversations with people like Pema Chodron, Jack Kornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and many others on the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Also, check out the video series on Spotify. Spotify. 